not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. And welcome to the Bobble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over nine years ago. In my blog, Unpickled, and in books like the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide, which I encourage you to get a copy of since the holidays are right around the corner and the way to protect your recovery is to plan ahead, and also my poetry collection, The Ember Ever There. So I tell my stories there, and I hold space for your stories here. Now, my guest today is Mary Beth Murphy. She is a registered nurse and a holistic wellness and recovery coach. As an integrative nurse coach, Mary Beth speaks the language of medicine and healing, bringing heart-centered care into her therapeutic relationships to help develop strategies to heal the body, mind, and spirit. Her work focuses on restoring balance into the nervous system using modalities like Reiki, cranial sacral therapy, crystal healing, and aromatherapy. So hi, Mary Beth. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Jean. Thank you for having me. Did I pronounce craniosacral correct? You did. That was perfect. <laughs> I've had it once, but I don't know how to say it. Yes. <laughs> I'm really, I'm glad you're here. I'm really fascinated to hear how you blend together traditional and alternative therapies. It's a really unusual combination. Um, I hope you're going to tell us a bit about that, but first I want to get to know you. So Mary Beth, tell us about yourself. Tell us your story. Okay. Well, my name is Mary Beth. I live in Southern New Hampshire. I am 54 years old. I am a mother to four, um, divorced woman who is, uh, in recovery from alcohol for almost four years and also recovering from codependency and, um, yeah, all the things, as we say, and she recovers, too. So um, my upbringing was that I grew up in a small town in New England and the coast of uh, the North Shore in Massachusetts. And I had a father who was an alcoholic in recovery and um, a mother who was just a little tricky as far as uh let's say, narcissistic tendencies. So the combination left for a very um, challenging childhood. At the time, obviously, that's all I knew. Uh, but now looking back on it, it really is explains a lot of, of where this all sort of came from. I started drinking when I was about 15 in high school, and it was pretty much the norm, the rite of passage in my high school to go to parties and drink. It was just such the norm. So I kind of thought I was just being a regular teenager. It felt really good to drink for me. It was a way to escape. It was a way to socially be a little bit more at ease. And it was really easy for me to escape my troubles from home. And then college came, so I went right into social uh, into nursing uh, from from um, high school and 
it's pretty common for an adult child of an alcoholic and an empath to go into nursing, a caring profession, um, to fix people, right? So um, I went to a commuter school. So I believe I look back on that, living at home and going to nursing school was the only way I was going to pass. Because if I went to a college campus and lived there, I'm sure would have drank and not made it through the program. Nursing is pretty rigorous and the curriculum is not easy. So I did make it through. I got a job in Boston. I had a really good job coming out of school. And again, I would meet with friends and drink socially. And I just felt like I was fitting in like everybody else was fitting in. So I didn't really see an issue at that point. I met my husband at that time um, a year after school ended. And we met at a party at the Cape. And he was drinking bowl, a bowl um, of egg beer because he ran out of glasses. It was the end of the week of his vacation. So, yeah, I'm like, that's that's the guy I want to marry right there, the guy with the drinking beer from a soup bowl. Um, anyways, it was a family of big drinkers. So alcohol was at every occasion, and every holiday, every, you know, uh, hanging out at the lake or hanging out at the ocean or meeting for a football game. It was not just a couple of drinks. It was a lot of drinking. And I actually didn't grow up with alcohol in my house because my father didn't have alcohol in the house. So, um, again, for me, I didn't really go away to college. So for me, it was just kind of like an extension of what college should have been just the never ending party. Um, so from there, uh, we started to try to have kids and we had some infertility, which was super difficult because I'm a nurse, I'm going to work, I'm seeing all these women getting pregnant and I'm not getting pregnant. So that was a really hard, like four and a half, five years of just trying to get pregnant, um, and not having any luck. So we ended up going the adoption route. So we adopted one child from a domestic um, adoption and got him as an infant. And that was so much, uh, such a beautiful time. We had such a great um, experience. We went to Ohio, we went to bed and breakfast. It was beautiful. So that was a a wonderful experience. And then when he was uh, just about two and a half, we adopted our second child. And then I got pregnant with two. So within four years, I had, or within five years, I had four children. And needless to say, I went from zero to four in five, in five years. It was a lot. Uh, and I slipped right into mummy wine culture, uh, drinking wine in the evening and just trying to use it. I, I used it as a coping skill. I would say that's when my drinking really ramped up. And of course, when you're in it, you have no idea that that's what's happening. So um, I remember trying to get my kids down to sleep by seven o'clock so I could start drinking just because it was such a stressful day. So I never drank during the day. And then I would wake up with a terrible hangover and be a cranky mom in the morning. So I used to have, well, I still do have those regrets of being that mom that was probably a little too short with their kids because I wasn't feeling good. I was hung over. 
I would also have, not with that, with that guilt, I would have a husband that would pretty much say, just suck it up. Like he'd never get a hangover. He drank a lot and he just didn't have the body type or the um, metabolism where it affected him like it affected me. So I used to think there was something wrong with me. Like, why is he fine? And I'm such a mess. Um, but it was never like, there was never that chance where he'd say, maybe you should slow down. Like that was never even an option. Like it wasn't like that was even on the table. So I'm still sort of processing all of that as well. So I always tell people, okay, so I never got a DUI. I never had any issues at work. I never had any issues with my kids. Um, I never had the proverbial rock bottom, but I always had that whisper of, you should look at your drinking. You should look at your drinking. You should look at your drinking. And I would always just ignore it, ignore it, ignore it, and uh, just keep on drinking. We had a lake house for seven years, and the party continued. So I don't know if anyone's familiar with lake living, but it goes hand in hand with lots of beer, lots of wine, and just, you know, my kids are having fun at the lake, but the adults were all getting really, really drunk. And it was, um, yeah, I mean, it was just like everybody was doing it. So I always felt like, well, they're all doing it. So can it be that bad? But I also remember leaving the lake on Sunday afternoons, driving home and having tremendous guilt and shame because I wouldn't remember some of the things that happened on the weekend. And I have four small kids. So that, that was always, um, a big, a big problem. For seven years. Like I really lived with that. So my husband and I were at the time we're on vacation, the two of us, and I we were at brunch and I was texting and walking after a flight of martinis with brunch. And I, I fell into a um, pothole and broke my ankle. So I always say that I got sober by accident because that was what I needed to slow down or to stop, I should say. So that was in November of 16. And I remember sitting on the couch with a cast immobilized and trying to figure out how to get my wine. And at the time I had that thought process in my head where I was like, Oh, I'll have one of my kids fill my wine glass. And then I'll have another kid fill my wine glass. And then I'll have another kid fill my wine glass. I'll be fine. But the problem was how am I going to crutch walk after wine? I'm going to break my other ankle. So that's when I kind of had this voice saying, Mary Beth, this is your time. This is your time to look at this. So I started Googling, like most people do at this point, where you're kind of saying, maybe I should look at this. And the book, The 30-Day Sobriety Solution, came up. And that's with Dave Andrews and uh, Jack Canfield. And I did the 30-day sobriety solution. And it gave me something to do every day. And it was my turning point. I haven't had a drink since um, November 26, um, 2016. Knock on wood. I'm still working my work. So um, I also read the naked, This Naked Mind, which was very uh, instrumental in helping me really look at drinking for what it was. And the other parts that really helped me were my holistic approaches, which I fell upon just through research 
and trying them out firsthand. So of course, I'm the nurse that has all the medical background and I love my science. But then I started using things like Reiki and doing self-Reiki on myself. I started meditating in the spring of 2017. Uh, I reached out and went to a Kripalu retreat with She Recovers in March of 19 and met Taryn Strong and learned about yoga and the um, essential oils. So I started, um, I became a yoga teacher as well. And I also learned from Laura McCowan a lot of journaling techniques and dancing and shaking out all of the emotion that gets pent up in our bodies from all of our traumas. Super helpful. And that led me to becoming a She Recovers coach back in, uh, let's see, January of 2020. And then we all know what happened in February, March of 2020, which brings us to COVID these days. That is where I am at right now. That is the end of my story, I guess, or the beginning, I should say. That's where we're at today, but it's certainly not the end of your story. I have lots to ask you about. First and foremost, I want to know how a person does Reiki on themselves. Can you talk about that? Talk about energy work and how it works and what's happening. Can a lay person do it on themselves or is it something you need training for? Talk a little more about that. I'm really curious. Yes. So Reiki was another gift from the universe that just fell on me because um, at the hospital I work at, they offered the Reiki training for the nurses. So it was a very uh, progressive hospital that found energy healing to be a, I'd like to call it complementary modality of healing so that it doesn't offend anybody in allopathic medicine as something to do instead of traditional medicine. So um, the way it was presented to me as a nurse was something we could do at the bedside for the patient, even, you know, just to provide comfort. Uh, So essentially Reiki is uh, a hands-on or you can or you can hover over a patient if you don't have like nurses have touch licenses where I can touch patients patients with my hands but if you're not um, a licensed professional that can lay your hands on somebody like if you were just a lay person you can hover or you can certainly touch loved ones right so yes so when you get Reiki attuned there's all different there's three different levels so there's Reiki one there's Reiki two and then there's Reiki master. And then after Reiki Master, you can become a teacher, which is what I'm going to be doing in January. Um, So right now I'm a Reiki Master, but my Reiki one I learned at the hospital. And essentially they teach you that when you get Reiki attuned, which is just a quick class, like it was uh, two six-hour classes, and they attune you. So the teacher does a special ceremony that gets you energized and ready to go and heal with your hands. And then you can do it on yourself. So there's different symbols, there's different sayings that you learn, and then you just learn a little bit more about Reiki in the class, and then you're free to go do it on yourself and your loved one. You know, the funny thing about Reiki is that it can sound super woo-woo of moving energy around, but I can tell you as a person who has anxiety, I have a big ball of energy in my chest, and it's in the form of muscle tension and holding my breath, and my heart is pounding, and there's all this stuff going on in my chest. And sometimes I describe it as like I'm sitting, I have a cat perch in my chest, and I ball my interior self up, and I sit on this cat perch. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
that's how it feels to be me. You know, I have to really work to remind myself that I have hands and feet and legs and this whole body underneath me that I need to be in tune with because my tendency is to ball myself up internally and sit on this cat perch in my chest. And on the occasions where I've had Reiki, that's what it feels like it does is it takes all of that energy that I'm holding up high in my body and kind of lets it move back to where it's supposed to be because we're really supposed to live in our whole bodies, mm-hmm. right? That's the idea of being a, a human right. <laughs> and this is working as it should. So even though there's there's an aspect of it that seems really kind of mystical, to me, when I think of it in terms of how it feels to be me and how I feel after having this, it's really practical. It just feels really practical. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I feel like I feel that way in yoga too. I feel like yoga gets me into my body as well, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but yes. Yeah, so, so and what I love about Reiki is it's very passive. It's not like you have to really super pay attention. You just have to sit with the intention that this is what you'd want to have happen, and then it just passively happens. So it's not like it's rocket science. Anybody can do it. So talk about how these types of therapies help support sobriety and recovery. Yes. So I I think what's really cool is I got Reiki certified back in August of 16 and started doing self-Reiki before I broke my ankle and decided to stop drinking. So I believe that it was the Reiki that sort of opened me up for that spiritual kind of readiness to give up the drinking. But it was not my intention when I got Reiki certified for that to happen. I just believe that, you know, when you look back on something, it's a lot clearer. And that's how I believe that 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 all happened. That I think our body is designed to want to be well and that we just get in the way. Mm, I love that. That's so true, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Our body knows what it's doing. (laughs) So like, say, for instance, you get a cut on your hand, right? It heals. You don't have to think about it. Right? right? So there's that innate wisdom that your body has to heal, and we just have to get out of the way. And I think sometimes what happens is, is when we hold on to things or feel contracted in the chest or feel like somewhere in our body, you know, the trauma that we hold on to, that keeps our body from functioning the way it's supposed to function. So I believe all these modalities help release that and then let the body just heal itself. Now, I also broke my leg a few years ago. I was already sober. I broke it skiing. And when I went to the doctor and said, okay, what can I do to help this heal as quickly as possible? Uh, One of the first things that they said was limit alcohol. And I said, oh, good news. I don't drink at all. And he said, oh, that's great. Like that will really help your body heal. And um, prior to that, I'd had my gallbladder out and, um, same thing. I said, you know, what's the best thing I can do to recover from this surgery and to live healthily without this, you know, body part that you're removing? And again, they said, limit alcohol. (laughs) And hey, good news, I don't drink. Well, they were like, well, that's great. That's like one of the most important things you can do. So as a nurse, can you talk a little bit about how alcohol affects our body and its ability to heal? Right. So in nursing school, they don't really teach us that. <laughs> I, I learned <laughs> I learned a lot of my um, about the effects of alcohol with Annie Grace with this naked mind. 
yeah, I, I, I have to say that I don't think it's not really taught in our curriculum as a nurse. So if I had known what I knew from the Annie Grace book, I probably would have stopped years ago, I think. I mean, I'm thinking that now. But um, I wasn't paying attention to what it did to the body. And actually, I'm quite happy to hear that that's what your physician said to do to heal because I'm not sure that many physicians would use that line of um, healing as the first line of um, getting well from a broken bone or from a gallbladder surgery. So traditional medicine, allopathic medicine is starting to sort of wake to this issue of the drinking and how prevalent it is and how it's so mainstream. So I think this is great. So I, I can just say that physically, I know that it's a depressant and who needs to be who needs to add any more things to be depressed about, right? <laughs> um, I know it affects our immunity. So especially now with COVID, we don't want to, you know, mess with our immunity system at all. Our nervous system gets affected by it. It's affecting our, our sugar levels. So uh, we're at risk for diabetes. So our pancreas gets taxed big time with alcohol. The list goes on and on. I could probably keep going, but a lot of our a lot <laughs> of our chronic diseases like heart disease, diabetes, obesity, they're all lifestyle um, based, and a lot of our lifestyle is surrounded around drinking. So, I would rather teach people on how to develop healthier lifestyles in functional medicine and and living a, a healthy way without using drinking as a coping skill. I, I, I think a lot of people are just so unconscious to the fact that alcohol is so harmful to us. It's funny that you point that out because when I describe myself as being this ball of energy, you know, in the top quarter of my body, <laughs> and then I was using alcohol to kind of numb the discomfort of living that way. And it it wasn't actually doing anything to help that. It wasn't helping me change that. And meanwhile, you know, it, it's causing all of these negative effects on our bodies. So that's that's a really good thing to point out. And it's a carcinogen, oh, right? I mean, there's, there's that. that. See? I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, and it's just getting the education out there to people, right? I mean, I think if people knew, it's just that people, are, uh, their heads are in the sand and they don't want to hear it. I mean, I might have read several articles back when I was still drinking and just didn't, wasn't ready to hear it yet, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was really the, the combination of being injured and almost a management problem is what I wrote down when you were, when you were talking about managing your, your injury and crutches and right. <laughs> trying to keep the wine intake. And then, uh, and I remember that too, thinking this is a management problem. You know, everywhere I go, I have to somehow fit in this level of drinking that I've become dependent on. And it's, it, it, it was so essential to how I was functioning. And yet it was so detracting from so many things I needed to do. You talked about doing the 30 day recovery solution using that book. What can you tell us about that process? What was that like? So being immobile and um, not having much to do and not wanting to just sit on the couch and obviously drink all day, um, it was perfect because you read a chapter a day and it had an exercise for every chapter and it was very manageable. And I figured what better time to do this than when I can't 
do anything. It was almost like, um, it was almost like a quarantine because you're on bed, like, you know, you can't move because you have this cast. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and just like with the quarantine, I think a lot of people probably examined their lives a little bit too, right? Because they found themselves with all this time and, you know, it either, it either made them crazy or it was time that they used wisely and maybe made some changes with their lifestyle or maybe changing jobs or whatever. So yeah, it was like my little mini quarantine. So, um, I really loved the, the way the book was, you know, it was very manageable. It wasn't overwhelming, but it was definitely a commitment. Uh, if I wasn't immobile, I don't know if I would have put the time into it like that. So it really was a gift, but I do highly, highly recommend that book. Do you remember any of the exercises or any aha moments that occurred for you during that process? Um, you know, it was four years ago. So I have to say, um, <laughs> I, I would think now I, I dabbled a little bit in some AA. I would say a little bit of it was just a lot of like self-examination looking at the whys, like, why was I drinking type of thing? And then, you know, a lot of journaling and just introspection. So, um, and things I wouldn't have typically probably asked myself, but I actually, I can't right off the bat on top of my head. I cannot remember like a a particular aha moment other than making it 30 days and going, Oh my God, I don't think I'm ever going to do it again. Right. So on day 31, you weren't tempted to tick that box and say, okay, I'm done being done. I can drink again. Yes. It just felt so good. Yeah, that you wanted absolutely. To keep I got yeah. the bug. Yeah. Now, what role do you think having a parent in recovery played in that? Did, did your dad's recovery affect you in as much as kind of knowing, I, I knew this, my dad was sober too. And from a young age, he had taught us, you know, once you're an alcoholic, you really can never drink again. So I had a heck of a time ex- accepting that that was me, but once I did accept it, I knew what I had to do. I knew that the answer to my problem was going to be living alcohol-free. Did, did you have that same sort of basis of understanding as, as a result of having a parent in recovery, or what influence did your dad have on you? So he had a lot more influence over me than I knew at the time. He was dropping AA slogans left and right, and I didn't realize I didn't realize they were <laughs> AA slogans, you know? You just thought your dad yes. was really I'm like, smart. Ooh, he's so wise. <laughs> Don't sweat the small stuff. Easy does it one day at a time. I'm like, hmm. Um, but, you know, of course, now I am like, wow, he was just throwing AA all over me. He would always say, you know, I'm an alcoholic, so you guys have to be careful. So I always had that, ooh, I'm an al- my father's an alcoholic. I have to be careful. But it was really weird how I processed this. I said, but he's a guy and I'm a girl and he's got the XY chromosome and I've got the XX. So it probably won't happen to me. And actually, even to this day, I don't really identify. I don't like to use the word alcoholic for me more than I think I was an adult child of an alcoholic and I chose drinking as a coping skill. And then once I found other coping skills, I have like no desire to drink. Like I zero desire to drink. Um, and I've been through some things and stresses since then and drinking is never on my list of what can I do to help myself right now? It's, it just kind of disappeared. And for me, that's really bizarre that I can say that. 
I think my codependency is more really my root issue. And I think that that came from being an adult child. So losing myself in my relationships. So I'm, I'm starting to like work on my boundaries and just finding out like what I need because I'm, I'm so used to distracting myself by fixing and helping other people. So I don't know if that really answered the question in the roundabout way, but. <laughs> no, it definitely did. And I want you to talk more about codependency and how it showed up in your life or how you started to identify it as being a problem because it's very confusing. You've got four kids. I mean, it's hard to separate being a good mother, being a a good supportive friend with being codependent, being lost in those relationships. And we tend to get quite rewarded for being people pleasers Mm -hmm. and, you know, being martyrs that give ourselves up. So talk a little bit more about what, what were your red flags? How did you start to know, hey, maybe this isn't good for me? Sure. So I think even my profession too, right? So being a nurse and trying to help and fix others that need me, I really loved being needed. And uh, I think I maybe got a little bit of burnt, burnout with that. Um, and I'm actually, you know, working on that as well, changing things up with my career and trying something a little bit different. I don't know if I want to say I was groomed to be a codependent, but I think when you grow up in an adult, in a, in a, in a family with alcoholism, it's like obviously a family disease. And that was just the role I took on that. I I tried to make everybody like, even though my father wasn't an active drinker, um, it was very apparent that we tried to keep my father happy and not have an explosion or a meltdown or, you know, an anger session that he would have from a very early age. And then it transferred into my marriage, which I didn't chat about in my intro because it just didn't go there. But my marriage didn't survive in my sobriety because as I woke up and found myself, I found how unhealthy my marriage was. So same thing, constantly on eggshells and constantly trying to please somebody that's just never, you know, that's not happy with himself, but took on his emotions and took on uh, trying to make him happy as my sort of role in life. So I kind of, I transferred from my father trying to make him happy to trying to make my husband happy. And um, that is just not a fun way to live. So uh, in my sobriety, I've had a lot of clarity around that and a lot of healing around that. I almost feel like I'm having like a new beginning to start over and start fresh and get to know myself and get I'm getting excited about getting to know myself. So at 54, it's almost like I'm starting over, um, which sounds a little sad because I'm 54, but also sounds really exciting because I'm a healthy 54. (laughs) And I plan on doing a lot with my life. Oh, good for you. Because I I think there's a lot of people who might resist making that change and making any kind of a, a big change at this stage of life because of fear. So did you feel the fear and move forward anyway? Or did it feel right right from the get-go or what, what were you up against in making this decision? Pretty much feeling the fear and doing it anyway. And it's the tribe that I have surrounded myself with that has shown me that it's possible. So when you see other people living in that space and that joy and 
it's like, I want, I want what she has type of thing. So, um, and I'm already feeling like pieces of it. And I'm also obviously super connected with the source that created me, uh, more so than I ever have been through recovery. I, I know I'm being guided this way. So how, how can you, how can you deny what, what your creator is telling you to do? So, um, my relationship with God is totally tight right now. And it wasn't when I was drinking and it wasn't when, when I was a teenager, you know, I had the anger towards religion and God and all of that. Like I think a lot of teenagers do, but totally found peace with this in recovery. That's interesting because uh, you're not using 12-step recovery, but that's a big piece of the 12-step program is to introduce an aspect of spirituality into your life so that you don't feel like you're so in charge of everything. And, you know, you can kind of give up some of the control that you're trying to exact over your life and just accept, you know, that some things are out of, out of our control. I think that's the whole purpose that the 12-step program puts an emphasis on embracing spirituality. But then there's kind of another magical aspect of it too that lights us up from the inside when we have something more that we believe in or that feels really kind of those wow moments, you know, where, you know, it might be a shooting star or it might be a series of coincidences, but there's just those times where we feel like, wow, you know, the universe has my back or something bigger is at play here. And it really does take us into another aspect of seeing things. Have you had moments like that? A lot of synchronicities. Yes. Um, just, you know, falling upon like women in recovery, meeting them at just the right time or, you know, oh, this class is being offered at just the right time that I can take it, things like that. So uh, books that I end up reading, you know, my meditation practice was huge. So I had a lot of, and, and then again, the yoga teacher training came just when I needed it. I totally feel supported by the universe right now. And, you know, that's what fuels me, that I know that there's a purpose for my recovery. And I know there's a purpose for uh, making choices that are in the best, my best interest for my recovery. And that will keep me staying in recovery. Like I know for sure I cannot still live with a drinking spouse at all. Like that just would not promote my healing. That is definitely way too challenging to live with someone that still drinks. So you mentioned that you didn't really have a rock bottom and that's great. I mean, <laughs> obviously avoiding disaster and calamity is wonderful. The downside of it is that without that huge event to push off against, we have to work a little bit harder to stay motivated sometimes. That certainly is my case. I also would say I'm a high bottom experience and I have to work to remind myself of how it felt and not just be able to say, oh yeah, you know, I I did X, Y, and Z, so I can never drink again. How do you stay motivated? What do you focus on to keep recovery alive and, and exciting? Yeah, so I think that's the connection, right? So just keeping myself surrounded with people that uh, are like-minded and finding uh, excitement and passion in my daily living. And then also I have just my list of non-negotiables that I, that I know have to happen for me to uh, stay on this path. And that would look like uh, waking up 
an hour before I'm supposed to be ready for anything and start with meditation. And then I do a little yoga routine and then I do a little journaling. And those three things are essential for my day to go well. And then just staying in my body when I feel like when you were talking about your cat perch, <laughs> um, I, that was such a great description because um, when I feel that creeping in is just having that awareness of when it's happening and then using a tool I have in recovery like essential oils or uh, calling a friend or uh, getting to a yoga class or dancing or something you know, getting out into nature, getting barefoot on the grass. Like that's a new thing I've been doing um, is taking my shoes off and getting my feet right on the grass because I feel like the earth energy sort of helps ground me and makes me feel like I can get back into my body. So I just keep learning more things. I feel like I'm just that forever learner. I just love to read articles. I love to get into Instagram with my sobriety friends and just see what they're posting. And I just surround myself and saturate myself with people that are on this recovery path with me. And I just feel so blessed that we live in this day and age where podcasts like your own and, you know, literature and just virtual Zoom meetings, just there's so many opportunities to connect with people. So that's what kind of keeps things fresh is always knowing that, um, it's right there. I just have to, I have to make my, you know, make my way to it. You talked about essential oils. Tell me some of your favorites. I know I find that just smelling something can bring me into a moment or cheer me up or make me feel a little bit pampered. What are some of your favorites or things that you recommend for people to keep on hand that support recovery? So I love a, brand, a, a blend from doTERRA called Forgive. There's just something about it. It's just such a great blend. It just brings me up. Um, so that's my favorite blend. It's called Forgive. And then um, at night, I put on Vetiver, which is a very thick, woodsy smell. It does not have the most appealing smell to it but I rub it on the bottoms of my feet before I go to bed and put socks on and I sleep like a newborn. <laughs> um, yeah, oh, really? I love that one. And, um, what else do I like to do too? Lavender is always a beautiful one. Oh, and frankincense. Frankincense is very grounding. I like frankincense yeah. too. So what is going on with aromatherapy? Can you ex- give the elevator pitch of what, is happening right. <laughs> that's useful with aromatherapy beyond just pleasure. Cause I, I enjoy essential oils just for just the pleasure of things smelling nice, but there's actually some, something going on there, right? Yes. So in the part of your brain, the amygdala where our emotions are. Um, so the, the oils go right into the brain, like they go in through your nose, obviously, and up into your olfactory nerves and then into your brain where the message to your um, amygdala is um, a pleasant sort of effect on your emotional regulation. So think about when you say, for instance, it's Thanksgiving and you smell a pumpkin pie, it brings that comfort smell to you um, and, and you have that sense of ease. So smell has a huge effect on how we can, how we can feel, right? 
So think about the opposite effect, right? You go into a hospital and you smell the, you know, the institutional smell, the cleaners, the whatever, and it's very, right? So it's very cold, you know? So um, it almost works in the opposite, the opposite way. And again, what I love about it is you're not ingesting it. It's just a smell. So it's more holistic. It's more of a complementary medicine. It's not something that, you know, you have to ingest. I mean, some people do ingest essential oils, um, but it's not necessary to get the positive effects and the mood elevation from just a smell. It's just super easy, right? Now, after putting all of the effort into pronouncing it correctly, I better have you talk about what is craniosacral therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So, um, I found a craniosacral therapist up in Salem, I mean, up in um, Nashua, New Hampshire, who was absolutely, I went to her because I had some migraines and there's so many muscles, so many, um, bones in your, in your skull that fit together like a puzzle piece. They're not fused. It's just like, there's like little sutures there and they can move. And there's these little movements you can do in the head that help promote the flow of cerebral spinal fluid from your head all the way down to your tailbone. So if you can kind of think of it as um, a very gentle, light touch, but it can help sort of unhinge any places that there might be a constriction to allow for better flow so that all of those nerves that run up and down your spinal column can um, function more smoothly. So it's almost like a more gentle chiropractic adjustment if you want to look at it that way. Does it, is it something you feel immediately or is it like waking up from a really good nap? What does it feel like when you're having it? Yeah. So um, I, I felt an awful lot like how I did after Reiki. Like it's just a very spiritual, calming nervous system reboot that you get up feeling really refreshed and ready to go. Um, everybody experiences something a little different depending on where they're at. And one day might feel different than another day. So it's not like it's a consistent yes. It's almost like like a massage. You know how sometimes you go in for a massage and one day it feels glorious and then another massage can feel like it hurt? Kind of like that. So, But you know you're getting a benefit from both both ways. Like just because it doesn't hurt doesn't mean it's not helping you. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. These days, a lot of coaching and supporting others is happening over the internet. So for someone who's listening, who would like to reach out and connect with you, how can they do that? And um, where can they find you? Sure. So they can visit my website. It's www.marybethmurphy.net. And on there, you can book a uh, discovery call. So we could have a 30-minute call just to see if our personalities can match and if you think that you'd get some benefit out of working with me. But um, working with a nurse coach in recovery is a little bit different because I have, again, the traditional medicine behind me. But then, as you can hear in this interview, I also have the complementary modalities of Uh, all of the natural holistic ways of adding things to your recovery. So you can kind of design your own and make it your own. So recovery coaching has really is something fairly new in the last mm, five years, I think. And 
it's something I'm constantly recommending to people when they write and say, I, I need to quit drinking. I don't know where to start, but they're adamant that they will not go to an in-person meeting. And uh, I usually try to encourage them to at least try to observe some meetings because making connections is really helpful. But coaching is, is like a whole new tool for the toolbox. So what are some of the things that occur in coaching that are supportive? And how does that differ from what you would get in going to a meeting or something like that, because that's a different tool. Sure. And like you said, I mean, I think meetings are great because connection is huge and developing a tribe is really important in recovery. Uh, but I think, uh, what I, what I love about coaching and what I like about, you know, being a coach is that you're holding a container like you hold here in the podcast to allow for introspection and for people. So this is where the inner wisdom comes up. And this is what I love about coaching is that the client already knows the answer. It's just kind of buried under layers and layers of their story. So just by hearing somebody's story and letting them talk is so therapeutic. So in my training, I was taught how to hold space um, and create that container for people to feel safe to unload and just get their story out. And then it's really magical how within an hour session, they're like, wow, I I didn't really ever look at it that way. Or um, they come up with their own plan because they had a space to talk about it and have have someone to bounce it off of. So it is a it's, it's a wonderful therapeutic relationship. And I, I mean, it, it's healing for me as well to, he, to help others find their own healing. So it's win-win and it definitely feels like a calling. And that, that's why I believe that I was guided to recovery because um, perhaps uh, this is the type of coaching or the type of um, way people might want to try to explore giving up alcohol. Well, that is wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your story and for being here today. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you so much, Jean. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And listeners, if you want to reach out, you can find Mary Beth. Her website is marybethmurphy.net. You can also email straight to me, thebubblehour at gmail.com, and I will forward it on to Mary Beth. That's everything for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. Just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. In a dark corner is where shame lies to hide. We think you're strong just cause you keep it on the side. It just stays in wait there to rob you of your pride. Turn the light on. Take back a little dignity I'm not looking for 
Just want to be free. 